The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turning our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 5. Now all of us, I think, has a tendency toward hero worship. It's in all of our hearts. We tend to idolize great men and women and build monuments and museums to them, to honor them. And it occurs to me that I indulge in this myself uh, this past summer. Christy and I went on a 30th anniversary trip to England. And uh, we went to a Jane Austen museum. And they had all kinds of artifacts from her life. And uh, I think a a life-size cutout of her and all kinds of things. And I enjoyed that, the great author of Pride and Prejudice. Then when we went to Oxford, uh, we went to the pub where... Uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and other great authors there, Christian authors, used to meet. And we went to the very booth where they sat, where there was a plaque, and I just felt something special about that. And then after that, I went uh, to meet up with some missionaries in the Balkans, and I went to a museum uh, to, for Nicholas Tesla in Belgrade, a great um, Serbian physicist, and they had artifacts from his life, and, and uh, probably a, a card, cardboard cut out of him too, and, and I just enjoyed that. And then I went to Prelapse uh, Macedonia, and there it was just amazing. It was over the top. Uh, in, in downtown Prelapse in 2006, they renovated the whole area, and they have, no joke, 250, 300 statues of great men and women from Macedonian history, culminating in this great warrior on a rearing horse waving a sword who they say is the Macedonian warrior, but they wouldn't tell us who it was because Macedonia is in somewhat of a conflict with Greece over where Alexander the Great really came from. So there he was, a great Macedonian warrior, wink, wink, but we're not saying who he is. And so there's all of this kind of greatness in this this hero worship. And, And there's to some degree nothing wrong with that, but as you study the Bible... And you begin to realize what the Bible says about every man and woman, boy and girl in the world. And you understand the wickedness in our own hearts. You start to realize that here at worship is completely inappropriate. For Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's only one perfect man. There only has ever been one perfect man. And that is Jesus Christ. And the Bible exposes the the moral weakness, the failures of every individual. Even more dangerous than kind of general nationalistic or literary hero worship is is that that zeroes in on religious movements. Hero worship centered on religious movements are especially dangerous where the founder of that religious movement makes him or herself the focus of everything. That's the essence of a cult. Everything's about that leader. It's all about Muhammad as he starts Islam. It's all about Joseph Smith as he starts the Mormons. Or Charles Taze Russell as he starts the Jehovah's Witness movement. Or Sung Myung Moon as he starts the Moonies. Or Jim Jones as he leads the people to drink the purple Kool-Aid. David Koresh with the Branch Davidians. Or L. Ron Hubbard with Scientology. I was reading a website that talked about the mentality of... These kinds of cult leaders who make themselves the focus of everything religiously. And 
uh, went on with 50 traits of these kind of cult leaders. But the first eight I thought were interesting. Uh, these kinds of coercive cult leaders have a grandiose idea of who he is, what he can achieve. He's preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, or brilliance. He demands blind, unquestioning obedience from his followers. He requires excessive admiration from his followers and from outsiders. He has a sense of entitlement, expecting to be treated special at all times. He's exploitative of people, of others, um, especially concerning their money, demanding their money and, and absolute loyalty. He's arrogant and haughty in interpersonal relating. And he has an exaggerated sense of power that enables him to skirt the law or even break it. That was just eight of 50 traits of these kinds of individuals. Now, hero worship's always going to let us down, but especially that kind of religious, cult-like hero worship. But God, through the gospel, wills to expose human sinfulness and to level human pride. He wants to humble the human race while he saves a multitude from all over the world from their sins. And in this second section of 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of his own experience in preaching the gospel in Corinth. He shows them that God was humiliating him and indeed all humans by the simple act of preaching the gospel of Christ crucified. Paul was not preaching himself. He was not a cult leader. He was not starting a cult centered around himself. By the act of preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, all human wisdom and power is leveled, humbled. God's wisdom and, and power and grace are exalted. And sinners are saved by that grace. So today we're going to talk about the center of evangelism, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We're going to talk about the humbling of the evangelist. In weakness and fear and much trembling. And we're going to talk about the power of evangelism, the Holy Spirit of God. And we're going to talk about the product, the ultimate product of evangelism, and that is faith in the power of God, not in human power. So let's look at the first of those, and that is the center of evangelism, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Look at verse 2, Paul's resolution. He says there, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul goes back to his mindset when he first came to Corinth. Remember the context. He had been rejected by the philosophers, the geniuses on Mars Hill in Athens. They had mocked him and scorned him and said, what is this babbler trying to say? They especially mocked the idea that a dead Jewish man on a Roman cross was the savior of the world. And that he, having died, would take on a physical body again in resurrection. That was utter foolishness to them. Paul then left Athens and made the 50-mile uh, trip along the Greek coastline to Corinth, pondering the experience that he'd had of humiliation and scorn at their hands. And he said, I resolved that I was going to approach the ministry this certain way. Look at verse 1 and 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So here we have the center of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul calls it the testimony of God. As though Paul were a witness at a court trial and God is on trial. In the hearts of sinners, the whole thing's reversed. Like Jesus standing before Pilate. God is being evaluated and judged by us. 
And Paul's a witness to that. Someday, though, that's going to be reversed. We're going to stand before God and give him an account. But right now, the witnesses are making a case for God to unbelievers. And so as I proclaim to you the testimony about God, Paul said he rejected eloquence and superior wisdom. For these things could never humble and subdue a proud, rebellious heart and make it submissive to a king, to King Jesus. Chapter 1, he's already told us that there's a limitation in all human philosophy and wisdom. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so Paul resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, he's not being anti-intellectual here. As though he hated deep thinking. Some of our, our critics say that about Christianity. They want to make it like we're, we're stupid people or anti-intellectual. That's not at all. Paul had, had one of the most brilliant minds in history. Paul wrote the book of Romans. On one of his trials, someone said, your great learning is driving you insane. Paul was not anti-intellectual. That's not what's going on here. But he had seen through all human wisdom and brilliance and saw the limitation and how it was essentially in opposition to the grace of God. He wanted to focus his mind on nothing except Jesus Christ. The infinite mystery of who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The greatness of Christ. I resolve to focus on Jesus. From the moment that the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, filled with murderous threats against the Lord's disciple on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ showed him some of his glory on that road. And from that moment, he could never get enough. Philippians 3 said, I just want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ every day. I consider all of the things I used to live for rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. All I want to know is know Christ. So when Paul came to Corinth, his mind was focused entirely on Jesus Christ. But not primarily Christ as the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords. Yes, all of that. But primarily Jesus Christ and him crucified. God in the flesh whose flesh was nailed to the cross. God who had blood whose blood was poured out at the cross. That's what he wants to zero in. So he's embracing the shock and horror of the cross. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. But salvation to the called. That's what he resolved. So I'm going to just stop through this sermon. I'm just going to make applications as we go. And so what's the application for us? Well, Paul's determination needs to be ours as well. We've got to focus our minds this week on Christ and him crucified as we seek to to win lost people around us. And if you're a Christian, that's your mission this week. Not just mine as a pastor. We have lost people who are around us who don't know that they're lost. They're without hope and without God in the world. And it's our task, task to tell them about Christ And you need to do the same resolution. I'm resolving to focus on Jesus and him crucified. 
We must teach clearly in this church the doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Born of a virgin. Lived a sinless life. Did all these incredible miracles. Walked on water. Fed the 5,000. Healed every disease and sickness among the people. Raised the dead. This is Jesus. This is our Savior. We also need to teach the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That this Jesus took on a human body so that he might die in our place and take in himself the, the just wrath of God we deserve for breaking God's laws. We have violated God's laws and we need to teach Christ and him crucified. And I just want to stop right now and apply it to any of you that are here today that you just you know you've come in here as, as non-Christians. You've been invited by a friend to be here today. And you're here today as a, as a favor to a friend or maybe you're just interested or somehow you found yourself at church today. And I just want to plead with you. I want to reach out to you now and plead with you to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. All you need to do is trust this Jesus Christ, this Son of God who died on the cross, who shed his blood, and your sins will be forgiven. You'll be set free from these invisible chains that have been on your soul, or around your heart. You'll be set free and you'll be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Not by works, but by faith and by grace. So we've got to do this. And we've got to embrace the fact that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And not shrink back from that, this bloody cross. The church is always under pressure to conform to societal norms on this and give up this awkward, embarrassing, offensive message of a bloody cross. I heard a story some time ago of a seeker-sensitive church. Seeker-sensitive churches are those that are, are trying to be evangelistic at every moment in the Sunday morning service. They're, the whole service is set up for seekers, for people who are interested in the gospel. And there's nothing wrong with having a yearning to have people come in. We want to have lost people coming to our services. And we want to welcome them in. But seeker-sensitive churches go beyond that to try to remove offensive things from the service and from the preaching that would cause people to stumble. And sometimes they go too far. And I heard this story about a new worship leader at one of these churches. And he did a, a series of, of blood hymns, like nothing but the blood and the rugged cross and all that. And, and, and afterwards, he didn't know the mentality, the strategy of the church. And so the pastor got up and apologized to the assembly there for all the blood language, said it would never happen again. Now, that's the very thing that this church must never do. There's no getting away from, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. John MacArthur also gives an illustration of this from this very passage. He heard the story of a church, and it had on the, on the, on the side of the church, we preach Christ and Him crucified. came right from the text I'm preaching on today. But there was a, a leafy vine or something growing up on the side of the building, and uh, little by little it started to cover over the sign. And uh, it preached over the last part. And so it, all you could read was, we preach Christ. The crucified part was, was blocked by the vine. And then, then the vine kept growing. And all you could see was, we preach. And, and then it covered over the word preach and just said, we. And then the whole thing was covered over. A church that turns away from preaching Christ and him crucified 
signs its own death warrant. It's only a matter of time before Christ will sovereignly remove that lampstand, that church, that local church is done. So we have to make this commitment. We have to resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what does that mean? It means to prioritize the cross over every other issue in life. It shouldn't be taken literally that, that, that Paul knew nothing about marriage and parenting and money and politics and properly relating to the Roman Empire or the topic of slavery or issues of justice in his community. He knew all of these things. His epistles are filled with these topics. But within the context, he's saying, when I want to see sinners made right with God... I want to know that they are going to be forgiven of their sins. I am focused on this one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And secondly, I'm going to see all of those topics. Marriage, parenting, money. Relating to the Roman Empire. Issues of social justice. I'm going to see all of that through the cross. We're going to see this in Corinthians. Again and again he addresses very practical issues in that dysfunctional church. Through Christ and him crucified. That's what he means by that. So first and foremost, we see the center of evangelism is preaching Christ and him crucified. Secondly, we see the humbling of the evangelist. Weakness, not eloquence or brilliance. Now this is the third in a series of surprising humblings that that Paul illuminates what God is doing to the human race through, through Jesus Christ and through the church. And the first, of course, is just the message itself. Christ crucified is foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And so just by saving the world that way, that's a humbling of the world. Secondly, as you remember, God is humbling the world by the church, by who he chooses, because the Corinthians weren't that awesome. Not many of them are wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, he says. This is the third in a series of how God works to humble human pride. And he does that by choosing Paul as a messenger preaching that particular message in that particular way. Very humbling to the human pride. Now Paul was not a polished speaker anyway. He wasn't like really good at public speaking. You know, some of his his opponents said in 2 Corinthians 10.10... For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. In other words, he doesn't have his gestures down. He doesn't look like much. And he's just not good at speaking. Apollos, on the other hand, was a much more polished speaker than Paul was. We learn of him in Acts 18.24. He was an eloquent man. Who was powerful in the scriptures. So Apollos was trained in the skills of public speaking. The Greeks made much of eloquence. Of excellent language techniques. There are whole schools that taught rhetoric. The science of moving people with with speech. With sequencing your arguments. And with skillful transitions and rhetorical techniques. There were just whole ways to go about it. Now look, Paul knew about these things and he could have made a go of it. I mean, you could say, Paul, you got to brush it up a little bit here. Tell you what, I'm going to give you 10 weeks at our rhetorical school and we're going to brush you up a little bit and just make you a better public speaker. What do you say, Paul? We'll pay for it. 
And Paul would have rejected it. He's like, I, I could do that. I could get better in rhetorical skills. But look what he says in verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. And then verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So anyway, Paul normally was not a great speaker. But he was at his worst, I think, there in Corinth, it seems. Well, look what he says in verse 3. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul was struggling, I think, with a high level of, of human anxiety as he began his ministry in Corinth. Not, look, some commentators try to say, it's a fear of the Lord and it's, it's you know, trembling in the presence of God. Don't do that. Pa- Paul was, was, was weak and trembling and afraid as he got up to speak. Unusually difficult. He's wrestling with something we all struggle with in evangelism, don't we? Fear of man. Well, let's be honest. The number one reason the spirit-filled Christian people do not witness is they're afraid what the people will say or do when they witness. If you could have your fear of man completely removed, you would be a river of evangelism this week. And so he struggled like we all do with fear of man. He was afraid of their reactions. What would they do? Would they turn away in indifference and just walk away? Would they stay there and mock him like they did in Athens? Even worse, would they attack him physically as it happened more times than he could count? Would he actually be in prison or maybe even killed? These are reasonable fears. And this, the, the proof of what I'm saying is in Acts 18, when the Lord Jesus appears to Paul in a vision and says to him, this is Acts 18, 9 and 10, do not be afraid, keep on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you, for I have many people in this city. Well, doesn't that prove what I'm saying? Paul was afraid of these things. Paul's not, not some preaching machine. Just push the on button, and he's like a, a man of steel, just going through situation. He's flesh and blood, just like any of us. He would wince if you raised a fist toward him. He would f- flinch. Just a normal person. So, when he came there in Corinth, his presentation of the gospel was weak and fearful and trembling. He was afraid. But here's the key. He preached Christ anyway. He was afraid, but he preached Christ anyway. Can you do that by the power of the Spirit this week? Can you feel afraid and proclaim Christ and Him crucified anyway? That's the challenge for all of us. He put his hope in the message and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you'd been there at that moment in Corinth and you heard him preach, <laughs> you might have been tempted to mock his stammering voice, his trembling voice. Maybe his hand was shaking a little bit. Boy, he's nervous. It's even worse if you have a paper in your hand. You can, it like makes it obvious that you're shaking. Maybe his eyes were darting and maybe he had beads of perspiration on his forehead. He was afraid. But there was a hidden power in this man and his message. There was something powerful about the Jesus he was proclaiming and the story of who he was and what he did on the cross and how he was raised from the dead and how he came to save sinners like you and me. There was a hidden power that changed their worlds those that believed. And so God 
is in the business of humbling the evangelist. If you want to be humbled, get involved in evangelism. It's like, well, pastor, why would I want to be humbled? (laughs) Well, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want a journey of grace? Then get humbled. Go see what God can do through people like you and me. We are in way over our heads. Do you have a sense of that? We're in way over our heads. The, The forces arrayed against us are almost undefeated. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they just win day after day. All over the world, in every language and culture, they just win. The message itself of a Jewish man dead on a cross, a bloody cross, is the salvation of the world, if you just believe. That's offensive to people. We're calling on people to repent from a whole lifetime of sins. To turn their backs on habits that they have engraved since childhood. And not only that, but to turn their backs on all of their religious schemes that they were holding on to. That, that their parents and grandparents and ancestors believed. Or their own worldview that they've come up with that's working just fine for them. Their own moralism. We're calling on people to turn their backs on all of that. And trust in none of it. But to turn to Christ and Christ alone. And the impulse as people hear that is to mock or turn away in indifference. Or even more to lash out in anger sometimes. As we go out with this message, we're going to be, if we proclaim it clearly, we're going to be um, a smell. (laughs) We're going to be an aroma of life to some, but we're going to be a stench of death to most. It's just the truth. And so, Paul says when he's describing all this, who is equal to such a task? And so we are humbled. Look again at verse 3. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul's converts were won despite his performance. Not because of it. Not by superior logic or dazzling technique. But by the true power of evangelism, the Holy Spirit of God. So here's the thing. Feel your own weakness as evangelists. Feel that reaching the hundreds and hundreds of people that are pouring into the Triangle region most of whom are are unchurched, probably lost, is so far beyond what we could do. Feel that your own efforts to convert worldly Americans at the workplace tomorrow or on the college campus tomorrow is just beyond you. Feel your own weakness and fear. Feel the fear you have. And by the power of the Spirit, act boldly anyway and share the gospel. The fear that you have before you do it, is your gift to God. That's your sacrifice to God if you act faithfully, if you overcome your weakness. I will never forget, I told this story a number of years ago, yeah, workplace evangelist, uh, evangelism situation. I was an engineer just out of MIT. I was working and trying to be a faithful witness and sharing the gospel. And there were different people, different reactions up there in Massachusetts, in Beverly, Massachusetts. And uh, there was this one guy I used to interact with from time to time he was the foreman of the, of the assembly workers there. A tough man. He was in his mid-50s, silver gray hair. Never saw him smile once. People were afraid of him. I was afraid of him. His name was Ron. I won't say his last name. I still remember it, but I won't say it. But the Lord laid Ron on my heart. It's like, oh God, why him? Not him. I want you to share the gospel with him. When, Lord, at lunch today. 
Ron usually didn't take lunch. He didn't have time for lunch. Lunch is for weaklings. But occasionally he would sit at his workbench and eat a sandwich, then get back to work. All right, right, Lord, I'm going to put a fleece in front of you. If he's sitting there eating his sandwich, I'll go share with him. But if he's not there, I'm not going to track him down. I'm not, it's like, that's what I'm going to do. So I prayed, peeked around the corner, and there he was eating his sandwich. Like, oh God, no. No. And I have never preached the gospel with so much weakness and fear and much trembling in my life. I said, Ron? (laughs) Yeah? I said, I don't know what I said. My mind was a blank. I was like, do you know about Jesus? Yeah, I know about Jesus. And I said, I just think you need him. And I gave him a track and walked away. (laughs) That was it. Look, don't enroll in my evangelism school. It's not how to do it. I have no indication that Ron came to Christ. I, I wish I could tell. And then you'll never believe what happened. He came to me at the end of the workday and said, Andy, I have needed to hear that message for decades. No one ever had the courage to tell me. But I, I prayed to receive Christ at 2.30 this afternoon. And I want to know, is there like a church that you guys are starting? Is there some... Dis- that did not happen. Thirdly, the power of evangelism is the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4 and 5. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. As Jesus said plainly, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The power does not come from human resources, but from the Holy Spirit of God. That overwhelming sense of humbling that you feel as an evangelist, that should not be the end of the line. It should drive you to prayer and a seeking of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. It is true that Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. But that's only true if you turn your weakness up to God in prayer by faith and rely on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit delights to show his power in weak, frail men and women, boys and girls. I think about David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Native Americans in the colonial era in America. And he was continually sick with many illnesses, but especially tuberculosis, which eventually took his life at age 29. He was beset with cyclical patterns of depression. He was terribly lonely. And he was incredibly effective. Or I think about Lottie Moon, who, who was missionary to China, stood all of four foot three inches tall, was 50 pounds when she died because of starvation as a result of the famine there in China, but was incredibly powerfully used to mobilize Baptist to missions. And God can use weak people, frail people. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And he sovereignly is sent out by God the Father and God the Son. He's sent out to apply the blood shed on the cross. You remember the story of the Exodus, the night of the Passover, when all of the Jewish families had to slaughter the Passover lamb and produce a bowl of blood. But that wasn't enough. They had to take hyssop and paint it on the doorposts and on the lintels. And when the angel of death saw the applied blood, he passed over. 
the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, it was his job to provide the blood of redemption. But it's the third person of the Trinity's job to apply it all over the world in every generation. And he is as effective at what he does as Jesus was at what he did. So if you're a Christian today, you owe your salvation as much to the Spirit as you do to Jesus. The Spirit sovereignly overcame all of your obstacles and won you to Christ. And he's the only one that can do that. The Holy Spirit's work in evangelism is awesome and powerful. And as you, a a Christian, just application point, just begin by thanking God for sending the Spirit if you're a Christian. And then pray for the Spirit to be outpoured on us here at FBC to to reach as many people as we can in Durham with the gospel. And especially, this flows right from the text, let's turn away from pragmatic, man-centered approaches to evangelism. American evangelicalism is rife with these pragmatic, man-centered evangelism techniques. Charles Finney, with his new measures, reduced... Revival and conversion to a science where if you can get the recipe right, you're going to get revival and you're going to get conversions every time. Called it the new measures. And there were a lot of preachers like him out on the American frontier. There was a man, a Methodist preacher named Lorenzo Dow. This guy was straight weird. What an incredible, interesting man. He uh, was turned out of every church. No church would have, but it was okay. He did camp meetings, tent revivals. He would show up at a locality crowded, you know, like a theater or something like that. And he would call out in a loud voice, one year from today, Lorenzo Dow will preach at this place and then walk away. And he kept all those appointments. Interesting advance notice. He was his own PR firm. He then would orchestrate techniques like he had this one young man climb a pine tree with a trumpet. And at at the right point, talking about the second coming of Christ, he did a gesture, and the guy blew a trumpet. And people were like, what was that? And people were techniqued into uh, an emotional reaction. In 1959, a man named C.S. Lovett wrote a book entitled Soul Winning Made Easy. What? Didn't seem like the spirit of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, but that's, it was all about techniques. And he took the techniques of the sales, sales approach the sales force in 1950s American business world and applied them to evangelism with really hokey photos of him there. And he said, now all you need to do at this key point, having shared the gospel, you then want to lead them in the sinner's prayer. It does not matter what they're thinking. It matters what they do. You put your hand on their shoulders and you say in a semi-commanding voice, pray with me. And then you push down on the shoulder and the psychological pressure of seeing you begin to pray, he will buckle. Friends, that's garbage. That's, that, that man-centered technique is garbage. We need to realize that the power of evangelism and of conversions in the Holy Spirit of God, there's no technique. Just like Elijah on Mount Horeb, he's not in the wind and he's not in the earthquake and he's not in the fire. He's not in the technique. Finally, the product of evangelism is faith in the power of God. This is the ultimate end of all this. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. In Corinth, God used an unimpressive Jewish messenger, 
displaying weakness, fear, and trembling, preaching a foolish and offensive message to change their world. Only God could do that. And so for the rest of your lives, we need to live out the truths of this message. Our entire lives and our witness in this community must follow the same pattern. The centrality of proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. The humbling of all human evangelists who are going to go out throughout the Triangle region this week in weakness and fear and much trembling. You, you can do that part. <laughs> the question is, can you by the power of the Spirit overcome it and share the gospel of Christ and him crucified? Can you do that? Because by the power of the Spirit of God alone is this message advanced. And then the final result is people who are converted to that power and rely on God, not on you as some cult leader or some significant person who found the technique, but on somebody who relied on the Spirit and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to study your word. God, I pray that you would work deeply in our hearts this message. Help us, O oh Lord, to know that we were saved by Christ and by him crucified. And, and the techniques and the approach that the messengers used to it with us is not important. Help us ourselves to get over our fear, our fear of man. Help us, O oh Lord, to be willing to suffer rejection and scorn and, and, and reverses at work and not getting a raise and, and people who used to be our friends are not friends anymore. Help us to be willing to pay the price so that we actually share this message this week and that we can see people saved, Lord, that we can even hear their testimonies in in the baptistry behind me, oh God, of people who turn from darkness to life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, will you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.